Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Corey Fleck and Shadmar Quitz here, your host for the weekend's edition, also your host on our website, kereport.com, and podcast, The KE Report, throughout the week, recording market updates on any market moves that are noteworthy, as well as company updates from a wide range of mostly resource stocks that we follow. On this weekend show, we're going to stick a lot to the market simply because, well, we clearly seem to still be in very much a bull market. We're kicking off this show with Dana Lyons, fund manager based out of Chicago, also editor of the Lions Share Pro website, which we will link to within our website and podcast postings. Dana, let's start off with the S&P 500. Earlier this week, it has made a run to almost 5,000. Seems like almost day after day, the markets are putting in new all-time highs. The pullbacks have been relatively shallow, at least throughout this year, the first about month and a half here. Dana, are we getting close to any sort of a top for the markets? Yeah, thanks, Corey. Short answer, I I don't see it. I don't see a top, but we do definitely see um, some areas of concerns, and certainly those areas are not uh, ha- have probably been um, widely spoken about and widely shared and recognized, and that mostly has to do with some of the uh, divergences in breadth, small cap divergences, uh, the internals kind of weakening, and and that certainly is going on, and it has impacted our what we call an intermediate term risk model, which basically orients us whether we're aggressively bullish or very defensive. And right now it is still, our model is still constructive, but it has weakened quite a bit. It's not roaring higher like it was in uh, November, December, but given the breathless, uh, no pun intended commentary on the weak breath of late, it's I think noteworthy to see that our indicators, our, our models have held up so far. So I think we would be seeing more of a weakening, more of a deterioration deterioration there in our models if a top was at hand. So I would right now there are concerns, genuine concerns about breadth and um, the divergences in the broader market and the small caps, but not enough to have us running for the exits necessarily or uh, uh, looking for a near-term market top, especially with, you know, as you mentioned, the chart action, the price action, and especially the large caps, but really a, 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 not a, a narrow o- array of market segments. Uh, there are plenty of good charts out there still and um, plenty to choose from, even if you do have some concerns about uh, some of the lagging of the small caps. Well, Dana, let's dive into the small caps just briefly because people have given that a lot of airtime when they talk about the market breadth that we were seeing really good moves in the small caps, like you say, out of that October low into November and December, big rally there, have been laggards here. Uh, One school of thought is that you just want to stick with the sector leaders, that they're the ones that are going to keep outperforming and that the small caps may be dead money for a while. But you had mentioned off mic that 
you know, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. This is not the same kind of setup we were seeing in July where everything was forced into a very narrow band. There is a lot of stuff working, and maybe it's just the small caps taking a breather. What do you make of the Russell 2000 right now? Absolutely, and and obviously the performance of the small caps, especially the Russell since the, the beginning of the year, has uh, left a lot to be desired. And, and the divergence is the, the lower high that we've got in place right now is is certainly concerning but as you mentioned it doesn't necessarily especially with our models still positive doesn't necessarily you know uh mean you stick a fork in them it could just be okay things got a little bit extended uh the small caps got a little bit ahead of themselves going into the new year needed a breather and now just like in november when the when the small caps rotated into some leadership uh it's possible that they rotate into some leadership again i mean Lord knows the large cap averages can't, you know, carry the entire burden by themselves. And uh, given the fact that uh, many of the indicators have held up, even with some of the weakening in the breath, have held up uh, okay so far. It's possible that uh, the the small caps in the broader market does reemerge and uh, help contribute to another extension higher in that uh, post October bull market. So. Is it uh, the divergence concerning? Yeah. Do I stick a fork in a, the small caps right now? No, especially with some of the uh, the late week, I'd say rebound. Some of the levels that did end up holding uh, in the Russell 2000 gives it some, gives those small caps some hope of, uh, again, rotating back into, uh, if not leadership, at least a good participant in the rally. Dan, I find this so interesting that sounds like you're seeing way more opportunities out there than the Bears saying, well, it's only being led by the Magnificent Seven. Care to share with us any of the other sectors that you see maybe as being some of the best of the best right now? Sure. And like you mentioned, it's it's a far cry from what we were seeing last July in which all you had was a handful of Mega cap stocks, tech stocks really leading the way. Now, you know, there's a wide array of, a fairly wide array of uh, areas that are still working, whether it's, you know, technology obviously is working well. Uh, You got the industrials and obviously all the uh, the mega caps, the large caps, but the industrial space working pretty well. Home builders are working well. Uh, and then you go overseas, there are plenty of uh, opportunities overseas, especially on the currency adjusted basis, whether it's Japan, many of the European indices, people might be surprised that are hitting new all-time highs or 52-week highs. So you have an opportunity there, uh, opportunities in, in uh, India, uh, which continues to hit uh, new highs. Even, you know, we've held this Argentina fund for a while that's consolidating near all-time highs and uh, maybe setting up another leg higher right now. So like I said, there's yeah, the, 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 the breadth of the, the internals have not been strong over the last six weeks or so, but there are still plenty of what we would call relative strength worthy, investable worthy segments out there in the market. So we have plenty of long positions still on hand right now. Well, Dana, it's nice to go around the world and and see that there's opportunities abroad as well as domestically. But if we just drill down again into some more sectors uh, within the U.S. equities, obviously tech has been carrying the torch and there's no doubt about it. The tech stocks, especially the large tech stocks, have just been on a huge rip higher. We've had some guests on that have been mentioning things like healthcare, insurance, defense, 
cybersecurity, different different areas that, that they think haven't maybe run as much as tech, but still present a good window of opportunity. Are you seeing anything in those kind of sectors, maybe more in the uh, the value side of the equation as much as the growth side? Yeah, well, you mentioned some right there. You know, cybersecurity has been uh, good. Obviously, the semiconductors have been uh, leadership, uh, but software is emerging in uh, in that in the tech space. Outside of that, some of the value stuff, uh, like you mentioned, insurance has been running to new highs for a while now. It's kind of under the radar. So that I like, we like positions that are under the radar that are still hitting new highs. That it tells us that there's more more potential. There's more money once they that story does get out. There's plenty of money that can uh, rotate into into those areas. So those types of things, and and there are a couple a couple others. We got other uh, funds that we own: aerospace and defense, which is consolidating in all time high ground. Another one, uh, uh, I know the consumer staples have lagged. But they've been emerging very recently, along with healthcare, like you mentioned. Uh, some of the small cap consumer staples, I think, might be ready to take off as well. And then something like uranium that's been on a big run, um, kind of consolidating right here after a nice pop near the former highs. And uh, once that uh, consolidation over, I think we could see another leg up in that, in that space as well. So like I said, there's no shortage of fairly attractive looking investment opportunities out there, despite, again, some of the weakening or diverging breath numbers that we've seen of late. Man, oh man, you are outlining a lot of positive factors out here that I think investors need to take note of. What about the financial sector, though? Because again, it's a lot of what some people look at and say, well, we could see some more issues with the financial sector, something that happened early on last year, which did cause a short-term shock to the market. How do you view the health of the financials? Maybe maybe different than uh, some <laughs> a lot of the other commentators uh, that I've at least heard, not on your show, but uh, elsewhere. Just, I think, regional banks, the, the struggles in the regional banks have maybe taken over the talking points as far as the financials go. But if you look at some of the broader indices like the bank index or some of the broader broad financial type um, ETFs I think they're in fine shape still they've been kind of consolidating as well that strong move they had in the fourth quarter of last year but still holding up not not necessarily breaking down so that's not to us that's not an unhealthy thing that's more of a healthy um, situation that could be setting up another break higher and again you look within the space you look at the insurance space uh, continues to run to new highs. So uh, there are definitely areas within that space that uh, that uh, you can either uh, that we'd be holding like insurance or even that we might take a stab at buying here into a pullback, including some of the broader financial funds out there that, again, if we are going to have another leg up, they have held up okay despite the uh, recent weakness. And what we want to do at the end of the day is buy funds, buy securities that are in uptrends, but buy them when they pull back in the short term, the more attractive entry points. So you could argue that that's where some of the financial things are right now. Well, Dana, when you take a look at the bond market or the converse of that, the interest rate market, what is your outlook, I guess, in the short term? And then I know you have a different view for the longer term. 
Yeah, bond yields are extremely interesting right now. You know, we we think uh, the 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 long bull market, sixty-year uh, bull market or a six-year cycle, I should say, topped in uh, 2020. Uh, the yields, uh, the bear market yields, uh, bottomed in 2020. So I think we go up for many years or many decades to come, but. The first level, if we're talking about the 10-year, the first big retracement level from the top in the 80s was around that uh, 4% level. So around where we are now, you know, we saw that breakout in the third quarter last year, ran higher. Now we've pulled back uh, in the uh, fourth quarter, pulled back. And uh, since uh, basically since the start of the year, we've been undergoing a very interesting test of that four percentage level right now. And I think the jury is still out as to whether it holds this level and provides a springboard for another big leg higher in yields and obviously lower in bond prices. Or if it does break down, that sets the uh, stage for a false breakout and yields could pull back substantially in the short term, you know, uh, despite our long-term view, you know, nothing goes in a straight line. So I would say the jury is still out. One thing that I've mentioned on the show before that I think bonds had going for them is the, the, the huge volume that we saw in the fourth quarter last year uh, when they were bottoming and when they were rallying. And then we've uh, kind of cooled off uh, since the start of the year. But uh, if that volume has any merits, could speak to a false breakout in yields and a big pullback eventually again in yields and uh, could lead to another nice rally. Man, oh man, look at that volume in Q4 and even heading into this year. That is impressive. I'm looking at the TLT chart. Let's also talk about gold stocks. We do like to get your technical outlook on those. Something like GDX or GDXJ, very much still just trading within this range. So you can argue it's been in going back to 2022. Uh, Dana, what are you seeing? Are you playing GDX or GDXJ at all? Yeah, we've held a position, a smaller position in GDX, as well as uh, some of the silver miners for a while. There's not a lot to get excited about, to be honest, right now. I wish I had something different to say. Our excitement is certainly uh, a a little bit more elevated in gold itself. We think um, we're setting the stage for a major breakout. Um, I think others are seeing that as well, which maybe maybe when once you know, observers forget about gold. That's when we break out again. But uh, I think technically you look at the charts, I think it is setting the stage for another uh, breakout in a big leg higher, which obviously should pull the miners along for, for the ride. When that happens, when that uh, kicks off, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, certainly we've been consolidating uh, for a while that, that rally that we saw couple of years ago, really four years or so that we've been uh, moving sideways. So I think that's coming and I think the miners will go with it. So we are holding smaller positions in, uh, in those miners stocks or funds and uh, treating it more or less as an, as a call option right now. Cause I think it does go eventually. Uh, but it's just a matter of getting um, maybe gold to break out and then pulling those miners along with them. Well, Dane, another sector that a lot of folks on our site follow is the energy space, oil and nat gas, and the related stocks. How are you looking at the energy sector? Staying away from the Widowmaker, uh, nat gas. They call it the Widowmaker for a reason, so uh, not too interested there at the moment. Crude oil, it's kind of like I look at a lot of charts every day. It's it's funny how similar 
uh, charts of the different asset classes look outside of the equity space. You know, you look at uh, whether it's the bond yields, you look at the dollar, you look at um, some like crude oil, you look at uh, some of the cryptos. A lot of it's been in a trading range and flipping up or down above or below a certain pivot levels. So kind of at the end of the day, it's pretty much range bound and uh, it's hard to get super uh, excited either way. And so it's hard to get super, su super aggressive either way in, in those markets that are pretty much range bound. So crude oil, I would say I would put in that category. It seemed to break down below some pivot levels uh, on the charts. We did uh, short it for a bit, uh, might be trying to recover that level now. So um, uh, in all those markets, all those range bound markets, uh, uh, my advice, I guess, would be keep your um, position sizing small uh, until you have like a clear trend emerging, a clear indication of uh, a, a trendy market, whether it's up or down, because Right now, as we're stuck in the range, it's hard to get, again, hard to get, hard to be too confident about uh, moves up or down uh, when it keeps whipping back and forth within the range. That's an interesting comment. Keep your position smaller. Well, we've actually seen lower volume in a lot of these other sectors in terms of the ETFs. What about Bitcoin too, Dana? Bitcoin has been on a bit of a wild ride after the ETF approval that pushed it back lower but it's starting to recover as we're recording this right around 45,000. Broadly, it's just been holding above 40,000 since December. Is this a consolidation building for potentially a bigger move higher? Uh, it's possible for us. The big, the overriding factor right now is the top back in, you know, the end of 2021, around 70,000. You take the 61 retracement of the down move into the lows in 2022 that's right around that 49 48 49,000 level right where we topped out last month so uh, i would say until that that level is decisively um overtaken i would say that puts a ceiling on the market right now so if we are consolidating i would say that's that that would be the high end of the range and i think right now Probably the low end where I try to take a stab on the long side might be down around that 36,000 level. Um, so that's another market, though, we're kind of right in, the, right in the middle of the range that it's been in for at least the last couple of months. But I, I would say, again, that 48, 49,000 level until that is uh, decisively you know, cracked, I would have a hard time being uh, too aggressive on the long side there. All right, Dan, that'll wrap us up here. Thank you so much for taking time and sharing how you are playing and even viewing a wide range of sectors. Big takeaway for me being, look, there are a lot of opportunities out there right now. And we have seen broad averages continue to move higher into all-time highs and continue past those. So clearly a bull market as of right now. But hey, we chat with you every few weeks so we'll see if anything changes next time we chat dana thanks for taking time with us on this weekend show. sounds good thanks a lot guys <laughs>
Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin and Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout. Providing unique reporting on markets and companies since 1990. This is the Corlin Economics Report. All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report. I hope everybody enjoyed those first two segments with Dana Lyons as he provided more trading strategies for a wide range of markets. We're going to shift our focus a little bit in the last two segments as we are now chatting with Mark Chandler, managing partner at Bannockburn Global Forex also editor of the Mark to Market website. Now, Mark, we wanted to talk with you about the real estate sector in the U.S., especially commercial real estate. But let's just start off broadly here with a recent article that you published on Barron's talking about community banks. So the smaller institutions here that do have more exposure to the real estate market, Mark, Just start us off with a general summary of what you wrote in that article, please. Sure. So I wrote it with a colleague of mine, Nancy Seeley, who's an accountant on our our team. And the gist of the argument is something like this. Uh, We all know about the big banks. They had problems last year, and the Federal Reserve came up with a new facility that ends uh, next month uh, to help them out. The small banks... These are like the, the regional banks, your small banks in your neighborhood. We call them community banks. Uh, tend to be relatively relatively smaller, of course, than the large banks. Maybe at ten billion or smaller uh, market cap. And so, what's happened is that a lot of the commercial real estate loans were made by these by these by these community banks, and they are not because they're not systemically important. They tend not to get as scrutinized and have a lighter regulatory uh, burden. Uh, than the large banks, which seems to make sense. The problem is, is that these small regional banks have little offsets. We've seen after last year's experience, we've seen the uninsured uh, deposits leave. We know that the small banks don't have the huge trading operations that a lot, that a lot of the large U.S. banks have. So the, this, uh, the problem then is that the uh, exposure to commercial real estate, which is not, you know, why is commercial real estate having problems? Partly, it's the type of commercial real estate we're speaking about is primarily office buildings. Now, I know there's some people who think that the rent-controlled uh, New York apartments was a major cause of, uh, of a New York bank uh, problems that were big in the news. But it's a much bigger problem. And it's not just, you know, it's funny to me is that Many of us are well aware of China's property market problems, but for the most part, it seems contained to China and Chinese investors. But the U.S. real estate market is not just about community U.S. community banks, but of course, there's global investors in there. We've already seen uh, Japanese and uh, German banks having to boost their loan loss provisions because of the U.S. real estate market. So the problem seems to linger, and uh, I'd say the Federal Reserve is, knows about it. Not only did Fed Chairman Powell uh, speak about it at the uh, at 60 Minutes uh, last weekend, but also the Federal Reserve does a stability report twice a year. And the last one, I think, came out in November last year, 
and commercial real estate was the highest. It was like, you know, in their survey of market participants, it was the most important of the potential systemic risks. So this is a product that's probably going to still be like unfolding. It's hard to know who's sort of like at Warren Buffett said, right? When the tide goes out, you see who's not swimming with a suit on. Last week, the regional bank index fell by about seven and a quarter percent. We're down most of this week, but we're down about two percent now uh, on the week. Uh, so another down week for us, but it's just something to keep an eye on and how it could affect other people besides those who have who, who know about their real estate exposure. One is that pension funds and other uh, asset managers have bought other derivatives that might have commercial real estate embedded inside of it. Sort of in the same way that during the great financial crisis, some investors unknowingly, maybe in their pension fund or some other investment fund that they are involved with, had some U.S. Uh, real estate exposure then too and uh, levered and whatnot. And maybe it was one of those ninja loans, no income jobs or assets. And uh, they got loans and those loans were repackaged and sliced and diced in numerous ways, giving the wider sense of exposure. It doesn't seem that the commercial real estate market issue is as big, but I think that will be, I think that many of people will find that they have unappreciated exposure uh, through some other passive investment they might have, whether it's their pension fund or some uh, mutual fund. Also, globally, it, there's, like I mentioned, there's some there's some exposures. But what does this mean? I, I would I, I'd have a list here of things that could get the Federal Reserve to move more aggressively to cut interest rates, and things that would slow them down. The strong jobs data, the above trend growth, that might slow them down from cutting rates. On the other hand, financial risk coming from commercial real estate could reach that tipping point and could become a more of an important factor in the, in the trajectory of Fed policy. Yeah, Mark, I think it's really interesting because when that New York Community Bank information came out and it dropped so hard, I think it got chopped in half in just a week's time. That was really affecting the KRE, the bank ETF and the, and the KRX, which is also an ETF that follows the small and regional banks. But then it came out that that Azora Bank in Japan and then the PBB Bank in Germany were having the same things exposed to U.S. real estate, in particular commercial real estate. And as you say, Powell in the uh, press conference that he did with 60 Minutes did address that some of the smaller banks may fail. So a lot of people are looking at this potential contagion effect, as you mentioned, like commercial real estate being involved in so many assets, being a factor that could get the Fed to move sooner rather than later, as you outlined. Do you think that there's a lot more skeletons in the closet with other banks where we're going to see the shoe drop? And will that actually mean more mergers and consolidation? Because what cured the problems last year were other larger banks coming in and acquiring these smaller banks. But are there enough banks that can make acquisitions if we start seeing dozens of these banks go under? It's a good point. I, th I think that some of the large banks might be barred from takeover. I think that the Federal Reserve wants to see them grow, many of them, uh, grow organically rather than through mergers. So that would really mean two things. One, either uh, other regional banks bulk up or some of these banks just go out of business. And, and to, to the point, really, is that arguably the U.S. is already still overbanked. On the other hand, that the bank that sort of like was a, sort of the, uh, the canary in the coal mine, 
New York uh, Commercial Bank, NYCB, that had bought a lot of Signature Bank's assets. So that, that's part of the, that's part of the rub with with NYCB is that it was one of the like the the shining knights, and uh, now that shining knight is having problems. And so I think that's that, that's really becomes the issue of uh, how to protect these banks if there's going to be weak banks, strong banks taking over weak banks. And you, you know, China's trying to do the same thing: the weak weak banks uh, being taken over by stronger banks. And that, that often, just as we see with NYCB, transfers a problem if it's not fully addressed. And that's the challenge. So uh, I'm not sure, uh, like how how far this story plays out, but I do know. Uh, that uh, people uh, like myself are watching some of the same small regional banks that we were watching about a year ago. And uh, the st- people like, I want to say, tar them with the same brush and are looking for, you know, poking around and looking for exposures and weaknesses. And uh, I-, I think this still has some room to play out. So, Mark, on the contagion question, then, clearly the markets don't seem all that concerned with the S&P now over 5,000. But can we put a number on just how big this issue could turn out to be if there will be contagion into the markets or if the Fed actually does step in and start up another kind of short-term facility to save these banks? Yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to put a number on it, but I would say that it's unlikely that the Federal Reserve comes up with a new program to help these small uh, regional banks. And I say that because, you know, after the great financial crisis, there is a, a rough agreement uh, among uh, among countries about how about how to how to uh, how to unwind a banking crisis or how to address a banking crisis, and because these. At an individual level, these banks do not rise to the level of systemic importance. And that's part of the problem, is what's systemically important for the whole United States might be different for a community. In some communities, you know, like we have in the U.S., some places have one grocery store, if you're lucky, you know, uh, close by. And uh, many communities are served by only one bank. And so some of these communities, if they lose that bank, uh, there could be a ripple effect through that community but it won't, ra- it won't rise to the level of systemic importance. So I hear you, stock market, S&P, huh? above 5,000, and still the bank stock's struggling. So I, I think that, that that speaks partly to what we've talked about before and what I'm sure uh, your other guests have talked about as well, just the lack of breadth in the stock market with the, with the Magnificent Seven or the top 10 companies accounting for the bulk of the rallies. Bank stocks, especially small regional bank stocks, aren't part of that mix. And in fact, it'd be the last eight weeks, regional bank stocks have fallen for six of those weeks. So that brings us back into the, the middle of December. So, yeah, I, I think this is the problem. It's not just an important point I'd say, again, is not that these banks are systemic one at a time, but a whole group of them could become more could become a systemic risk. And even if they don't, the hardship that falls on the community that sees its community bank fail or go under, out of business is problematic for, you know, it has a ripple effect through the community. Well, Mark, just talking about you know, bringing this all over to the markets and looking at you know the S and P above five thousand. It's not just the S and P that's broken out to new highs. It's also the Dow that that did it at the end of last year and did it again earlier this year, last month. Same thing with the Nasdaq. So really across the board and the weighted indexes, you've seen breakouts to new highs in the markets. As far as the market breadth uh, phenomenon, that's mostly relegated to the small caps, and there are certain sectors like financials, or you could also argue energy that have been laggards. 
one of the philosophies out there is that the laggards will remain laggards and that you'll see people continue to pile into what's working. Do you see that happening as the year unfolds, that people just keep piling into the sectors that are working and it's more of a dynamic market where there's the haves and the have-nots? Or do you think eventually this broadens out into a larger market rally? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I really don't know. I mean, uh, my, my sense is that this is late stage and uh, I wouldn't expect small cap stocks to do necessarily well in this last, this late stage of this expansion. Cause remember what's going to happen. Even if we don't know the exact timing of it, the Fed's going to be cutting interest rates, not just because inflation is slowing, but also because the economy itself is slowing. And we might not see that. I mean, there's, of course, all kinds of signs below the surface, but for GDP measures, it's not there yet. So I think it's more of a second half story. But, you know, in the, in the, in the fourth quarter of last year, the Russell uh, 2000 did almost as well as the S&P 500. So the real disconnect seems to me to be happening now, this year, and six weeks into it, rather than some kind of longer term structural development. Mark, what happened to the relationship between what we were seeing where dollar moving down, markets moving up? We can even tie that in with yields too. yields moving down, markets moving up. That hasn't been the case this year. We are about a month and a half in. But throughout this year, markets have been moving up as the dollar and yields have been moving up. Part of the reason I think, uh, you know, you've got these uh, short term correlations uh, in the financial markets, which aren't stable. So I, I try to look for like phases and look for correlations within certain like uh, sort of like within a certain phase, there's you could count on the relationships, but then you move into a different phase and you can no longer count on those relationships. So I kind of think that since they call it the Q, beginning of Q4 last year, I'd say that the driver has been uh, first it was down with interest rates, down with the dollar. Now, higher interest rates, stronger dollar. And throughout this, to your point, Corey, is the stock market has just gone up. So uh, to me, it's the stock market that's not following the script. The dollar and interest rates are more closely tied, more stably tied, I think, uh, than than, uh, interest rates, the dollar are related to the stock market. I think the stock market seems to want to go up. And partly, I think that the U.S. is still got the commanding heights of the global economy. The U.S., you know, other countries, of course, have become more important, have risen GDP. Uh, but the U.S. still has the commanding heights of the economy and faster growth than Europe. And we're likely to see that driven home next week. We get the final leads from the uh, Eurozone GDP. We get the U.K. Q4 GDP. We get the uh, Japan's Q4 GDP. And uh, I think that it sounds kind of weird to say this, but once again, I think the U.S. is the driest towel in the rack. And uh, by that, I mean that uh, the growth potential, what the U.S. growth record is, uh, Q4, what it's looking like early here in Q1, still out, you know, far and away is better than Europe. And because of that, I think that people think that that translates into higher profits, stronger stocks. And so I think that until proven otherwise, I think people stick with that. Well, Mark, isn't it also the case that the narrative changed from last year where it was really recession watch? And are we going to have a soft landing or recession? And now most people have acknowledged that the recession is nowhere close to being even on the field. And it's more of a you know, are we going to, like we talked about last week with you, are we going to have a soft landing? Or are we going to have an acceleration in the economy? It seems like the biggest sea change has been last year, bad news was good news because it meant that the Fed may start cutting earlier. Now it seems like the market and even financial media has shifted to good news is good news because if you have 
better than expected jobs, better than expected GDP, better than expected consumer confidence, that's translating into, hey, this is a strong economy and companies should have profits. Isn't that kind of the change we're seeing in 2024? I think you're right. I think that it's changed. But, I, you know, many people who I, who I read and I respect, though I don't always agree with them, I haven't given up on this uh, recession call. Uh, they see a, they see a lot of problems lurking below the surface, and uh, are sort of like bemused, uh, confused uh, by how how the calculation shows GDP holding up so well. So I don't think that people. I don't, so so for me, there are some people who are very negative on the U.S. economy, and they they haven't changed their minds. And we're going to see economic data. I think that's going to show the economy slowing, but very gradually. So that's that's the concern, I think. But I, I think you're right that the, right now the debate is between soft landing and reacceleration. And I think the Federal Reserve has fully given like a full endorsement as much as they can of the of a soft landing. So, Mark, where do you stand in that whole debate? Because, look, there's always going to be people poking holes in the data on the good side and on the bad side. Depending on what that data is, there's always going to be people saying that, the markets are in for a hard time and there's always going to be the bulls saying, oh, bull markets climb a wall of worry. Where do you stand on not just the will we have a recession, let's say within a year, but how markets will do during that time? Yeah, so here's, here's what I'm thinking is that the uh, fourth quarter of last year, U.S. interest rates fell too far and we've corrected here the first six weeks or so of the year. And I think that correction is just about over and i think that next week's economic data could help like solidify that it's over and i'm looking at two numbers in particular next week that should confirm this one of them is cpi and the median forecast on bloomberg among the economists that bloomberg surveyed 2.9 percent year-over-year headline cpi that's an incredibly low number. It's the lowest number in several years. And bringing a 3% threshold should be one of those things that boosts the Fed's confidence that inflation is headed towards its target, which brings forward then that rate hike that the market keeps pushing further and further back in time. We also will get next week retail sales. Retail sales is important because it's a, it's a measure of consumption, not full consumption. It's about 40% or so of U.S. PCE, personal consumption expenditures. But it's a timely number. It's mostly goods, not so many services. And we could see a contraction, partly because of the weakness in auto sales we've already seen. So we could see a 0.1, decline in retail sales, coupled with the softer inflation number, should help, again, boost the Fed's confidence, boost the market's confidence about the Fed's confidence that inflation is on its way to its target. And maybe that suggests that we don't have to really write down more of a chance, reduce the chances of a May cut. And people are beginning to shift to, to June. And this might help bring us back into a May cut. Well, Mark, just one more question on the Fed's 2% inflation target. I think a big change in the narrative at that 60 Minutes interview that Powell gave with Scott Pelley was he asked him directly, he asked Jerome Powell, are you committed to getting all the way to 2% inflation before you cut rates? And Jerome Powell said, no, no, that's not what we say at all. No, we're committed to returning inflation to 2% over time. I've said we wouldn't wait to get to 2% to cut rates. Now, that is a different message than they gave the markets last year, where they said they want to see it at 2% and sustainably at 2% for a period of time. 
Now it seems like they are willing to cut rates before it gets to 2% as long as the trend is going that direction. You mentioned regional banks could be one of the things that would get them to cut early. But really, right now, what impetus do they have to even cut by May when everything is going so well in the economy? Yeah, so, Shad, I think two points I'd say is, one, I'd point out that the Federal Reserve's summary of economic projections, and you can find this on the Internet. The Fed publishes this every quarter. And the Fed has said for over a year now, they've projected rate cuts in 2024 before their inflation target is reached. So to me, the fact that the the idea is that monetary policy acts with a lag. And so if you wait till we get 2% inflation, it's already too late to begin cutting and to try to remember the Fed's goal is here is using monetary policy to try to make sure, try to boost the chances that we can avoid a recession. So that means cutting interest rates before you're at your target because the rates have a lagged effect on the economy. So I, I don't think that's the big change here. I think the tension is between the Federal Reserve saying three cuts this year and the market having priced in six cuts, maybe a little bit more than six cuts at the end of last year. And once again, it's like, who's going to move first? How, is, how are the two views going to converge? And last year, several times we saw where the markets got too far ahead of the Fed, and would converge with the Fed rather than the Fed converging with the markets. This time, I think the Fed, uh, as, as of December, had three cuts priced in into their forecast, the summary of economic projections. And I think that there's going to be a convergence around four cuts. And that would allow for a May cut. Uh, but I'm, 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 still, I'm still not convinced that they cut in May, but I think that, that this is still a fluid issue. But I, I think that there's a very little chance that the Fed stands pat all year. I think that the quality of the growth, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to know, right? We're still early in the quarter, uh, too early for the Atlanta Fed's tracker to be very useful, but it's above 3%. I think that the Bloomberg uh, uh, medium view uh, for Q1 is about a 1% growth. So we have to see how the numbers play out. That's why next week's numbers are important. It'll be the first sign of how the consumer is doing in the new year. All right, Mike, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much for your assessment, first and foremost, on the banking sector tied in with real estate in the U.S. And now, again, still what everyone's waiting for is that Fed rate cut. Why, when, and how many this year? We won't know until we're at the end of the year, but boy, oh boy, it's a guessing game for everybody on pretty much a daily basis too so mark thank you again for your time just as a reminder you can follow along with mark's market and economic commentary on his website mark to market everyone thanks for tuning in on this weekend show please go back through our website kereport.com and podcast the ke report as well as our new youtube page VKE Report to catch up on all of our daily editorials and company updates as well as full market weekend show recordings. Everyone, hope you have a great rest of your weekend.